it's almost impossible to overstate how big of a deal the 1904 World's Fair was at the time. Not only would the city be hosting an international expo to mark a century since the Louisiana Purchase, they'd also be hosting the Olympics, which was a first in American history. Judy Garland even starred in a movie about it years later. When planners began imagining a Louisiana Purchase exposition, they, they wanted it to be a celebration. Peter Castor is a professor of history and American cultural studies at Washington University in St. Louis. He uses the 1904 World's Fair as a way to teach U.S. history at the turn of the century. The World's Fair movement was designed to enable people to see a larger world than they could ever see any other way. And there were people who would come to the World's Fair from far and wide for weeks. And there were not only displays of the newest technologies and the newest discoveries, but almost every state would have some presence there to so that you could understand that state. And it really taught that to Americans. But I think it showed Americans what this 20th century America was going to be. But there was a darker side to this whole thing. The place that is now Missouri is land that was acquired by the United States through the Louisiana Purchase. And the people planning this, all Euro-American, thought this will celebrate St. Louis, it'll celebrate Missouri, it'll celebrate the purchase within American history. And also they wanted to celebrate the United States at, at a very particular moment. Looking back on it now, we see the way the World's Fair really told the story of white supremacy, of native dispossession, of American empire, all of which are in critical terms now. So the story of white supremacy manifested itself in some pretty obscene ways. When planners were working on the World's Fair, one of the things that they wanted to do in this was to announce the arrival of the United States as a world power with an empire of its own. And one of the ways they were going to do this was to put the peoples conquered by the United States on display. So there was a Philippine village, there were Native American villages, there were all of these spaces there. And the claim was these must be put on display so that visitors can see these cultures before they disappear. This ideology spilled over into the Olympics. In an article for Smithsonian Magazine, Karen Abbott describes anthropology days where athletes from the International Village had to compete in events like mudslinging, ethnic dancing, and greased pole climbing. Through a modern lens, it of course seems insane, and even at the time, a French historian named Pierre du Coubertin blasted the spectacle as obscene and racist. And even events that weren't overtly racist were just... different. Uh, the 1904 Olympics still had events that were very quickly discarded. You know, they had tug of war, <laughs> things like that. You know, uh, yeah, it's not it's not the games of the Greeks. Um, there were all of these events. So suffice to say, things at the 1904 World's Fair weren't always well thought out. And it's against that backdrop that the Olympic marathon makes a bit more sense. It's often considered to be one of the worst sporting events ever. But it was just one of the events that year marred by scandal and treachery. 1904, as it turns out, was a pretty bad year for sports. And in three installments, 
we'll look at three different stories that illustrate that. My name is Stuart Barefoot, and this is Obscure Ball, a sports storytelling podcast. That story is next. Before we do the episode, I'd like some help in supporting the show. If you're enjoying it, please send it to a friend, colleague, neighbor, maybe even a stranger. That's the main thing you can do to help out. These episodes are meant to be heard and enjoyed by all. Also, if you feel like this show deserves it, you can support Obscureball financially by making a donation. A lot of time and effort goes into making this podcast unique, and there's so much more I hope to do. But everything costs money, and at a minimum as a freelancer, I do value my own time. So if you feel inclined, there's a link in the description. You can choose the amount, but anything you can spare will help continue to make this show even better. If not, don't worry. You're still welcome to enjoy the show for free. Okay, on to the episode. It's called Circa 1904, Part 1, Hell Race. But yeah, and this was a time where running wasn't, wasn't what it's thought of today. David Gunn, who sometimes helps with research for this show, also runs in marathons, and as you can probably guess, it's the type of thing that requires training and skill. Yeah, so when I did it, I did uh, the Flying Pig in Cincinnati, and for me that was the, the first one I had done, and a lot of people were like, oh, you don't want to do that one because there's this giant hill that you got to contend with. And for me, I did all my training in Chicago where it was flat. You know, if you're coming from not running at all, you really got to plan eight, nine, ten months in advance. Some people a year or more. Of course, David has the benefit of learning from others. Nowadays, there's all kinds of resources online. There's training routines and even the collective knowledge of other people. But in St. Louis, back in 1904, none of that existed. The modern marathon, and even the Olympics for that matter, had only been around since 1896, so everyone was still trying to work out some of the kinks. Even still, some of the runners in the 1904 race would have had some experience. Sammy Malore won the 1902 Boston Marathon. John Lorden won it in 1903, and Mike Spring was fresh off his 1904 win. Not that you should know who any of those guys are, but they were somewhat big names at the time. In any case, none of them won this particular race. It's worth noting that very few non-Americans had interest in coming to St. Louis. Either they didn't want to be subjected to racist anthropology days, or they just didn't want to make the long journey. There weren't a lot of non-American runners in the marathon. Of the small international contingency were two South African runners from the Swana tribe who had been hired as war reenactors that were recruited at the last minute to join the race after so many runners dropped out. They didn't even have shoes at first. Perhaps the most compelling character was a Cuban mailman named Felix Carbajal. He was known around Cuba as a fast and skilled runner, but never ran in an actual competition. The Cuban government wouldn't even sponsor his trip to the Olympics. But he was determined, so he managed to raise enough money to get a boat ticket to New Orleans. And he gets there and then immediately gambles all his money away, and then hitchhikes the rest of the way to the start line. And he gets to the start line wearing a beret, uh, like his like travel shirt and like long pants. And then somebody had a pocket knife and they cut his pants and fashioned him some running shorts. Oh, and he had his boots too. He didn't have running shoes or any 
and then he, he just ran in that. Most everyone else was a group of newbies cobbled together by race organizers. Now, whether they were newbies, experienced, or somewhere in between, nobody running in this race had any idea what they were up against. The route began and ended at Francis Olympic Field, where the runners ran a few laps around the track and then set off on an extremely difficult course. There were several massive hills throughout the roughly 26-mile route, and there was only one water stop about halfway in. The year I ran, I think there were 26 water stops, which is one per mile. So you're never that far from one, which was kind of a, a surprise when I, when I saw that this, this marathon only had one water stop. It's like, I, I couldn't imagine doing that. Not only that, this was 1904, so the roads weren't paved and a convoy of race officials and coaches were driving ahead of the runners and cars, sending up dust and debris. Also, no one really bothered to clear the route, so runners also had to contend with everyday traffic like cars, wagons, horses, however people got around in 1904. Oh yeah, it was a blistering 90 degrees outside. And runners really didn't have advanced athletic clothing. Basically just street clothes and 20th century footwear. No electrolyte fluids. There, there's no nylon. There's no spandex. And my point is that these athletic events where people died, where people just collapsed, where they passed out, makes sense because the most importantly, they you know they didn't really have rubber-soled shoes. So all of the things that enable now enable elite athletes to do extraordinary things and enable mediocre athletes like me to do anything. None of that was there. Needless to say, what unfolded was a disaster that's been covered really well already. John Boyce did a whole video for SB Nation, and Karen Abbott wrote a story for Smithsonian Magazine. Both are worth checking out and are linked below. But in case this is new to you, here's the overview. On August 30th, 1904, 32 runners started the race, but only 13 of them would actually finish. Everyone else either passed out, accidentally poisoned themselves, got chased off by wild dogs, got disqualified for cheating, or got cramps. Lorden, the former Boston Marathon champion, made it less than a mile before cramps got the better of him. Early on, it was actually Felix Carbajal, the Cuban mailman who arrived at the last second who got off to the best start. It's reckoned that he would have won the race, but he stopped to take a nap. As legend has it, he stopped off to eat apples that he saw growing on a tree. They turned out to be rotten, and he got bad stomach cramps, so he lied down and fell asleep, which cost him the race. Now, that little tidbit is actually disputed by historians, namely George Matthews and his book called America's First Olympics. While there are first-hand accounts of Felix playfully taking peaches from spectators, the apple incident is unproven and weird and Probably not true. But whatever did happen to him, Felix did not win the race. He'd come in fourth. And he was hardly the only runner to fall victim to the conditions. A St. Louis resident named Horace Ramsey and his wife were following the race in their car and came across a runner named William Garcia. He was bloody and unconscious, and no one seemed to be paying attention to him. So they pulled him into their car and quickly drove him to seek medical attention. Meanwhile, pandemonium was reigning supreme. 
Wild dogs chased off one runner. Two race officials crashed their cars into ditches, and runners were dropping out left and right. Stomach hemorrhages, cramps, dehydration, you name it. Miller was leading the pack at about 15 miles, but dropped out after feeling intense pain in his left leg. Another American named Fred Lorris also began cramping, but instead of taking a nap or quitting, he hitched a ride in a car and cruised along for about 11 miles. After feeling rested up, he eventually decided to get out and run again. And at first, it actually appeared like he won the race. Spectators at the finish line cheered him on until it was discovered that he was cheating, and then he was booed off. The actual winner was a bricklayer from Massachusetts named Tom Hicks. He was a relatively experienced runner, but frankly, almost died trying to finish the race. His coach was a doctor named J.P. Lucas, who began pumping him full of strychnine, which is rat poisoning, brandy, and egg whites, none of which, of course, is even remotely healthy. But back then, it was thought to be a performance-enhancing cocktail of some sort. To Dr. Lucas, this seemed like a better option than water, which Lucas denied him. So he was dehydrated, thanks to the lack of water, hallucinating because of the rat poisoning, and drunk because of the brandy. With about a mile to go, he believed he was 20 miles out and wanted to quit. Now, the worst side effect of strychnine poisoning is dying. But in smaller doses, like Hicks got, it causes muscle spasms, and it also makes the limbs go limp. One first-hand account claimed that Hicks could barely move his arms or legs. When I ran Flying Pig, I burned uh, 3,500 calories. So your daily recommended is 2,000. So I burned more in the four and a half hours than you're supposed to consume. So that's also why the hydration and the food is so important. You need to be replacing as you're losing. It's okay to go negative during the race, but you need to make sure you're not too far in the red, which is obviously what Hicks was doing. And that's solely, you know, solely based on his trainers, uh, just giving him raw eggs, not giving him water and then shoving brandy down him. Also, don't forget the rat poison. Lots of uh, medical knowledge that enables us to understand the performance to the human body was just starting. So that's another reason all this is happening. Beyond all comprehension, Hicks still managed to win the race. A newspaper called the St. Louis Republic reported that when spectators saw Hicks appear near the western entrance of the stadium, they all began to cheer. Quote, An immense roar of applause went up, and he broke the tape and won and was led to the president's box, who offered him an official congratulations and presented to him the cup donated by himself. End quote. It must have been around this time that he passed out because the next paragraph in the paper simply says that his friends carried him to the doctor where it was discovered that he lost 10 pounds. It took Hicks three and a half hours to finish the race, which is the slowest time of any recorded marathon champion, which isn't quite as bad when you consider that he was drunk, dehydrated, losing weight, and hallucinating. Six minutes after Hicks, a Frenchman named Albert Corey crossed the finish line, coming in second, followed by an American named Arthur Newton 13 minutes after that. With all the medal winners now finished, it was around this time that the St. Louis Republic reported that a Barker, presumably someone who worked at the stadium, ordered fans out unless they bought a ticket at the box office for the next event. Kind of seems like a fitting in for such a ridiculous event. 
The more forgiving view of what happened in August of 1904 would be that the modern Olympics were still pretty new and everyone was still trying to figure things out. Athletic events like that were new. It does seem nuts to me, but nonetheless not surprising that countries would just find someone they could throw into these events. Think about how much is involved with training for a marathon now, about nutrition, you got to have a lot of free time, unless you are an elite athlete who does this for a living, or an amateur who has financial support. None of those structures were in place at that time. There was just not a lot of thought put into a lot of that stuff, all the technicalities. I mean, obviously the technology was different, but it was like I mentioned earlier, just go out and run. You know, see how it goes. See how you get on. Maybe you could win. And I think that was a dream in a lot of the runner's eyes. It was just show up and run. That's all it is. You just run. That's all true. But a closer look uncovers something a bit more sinister. Dr. Susan Brownell edited the 1904 Anthropology Days and Olympic Games. Aside from dissecting the savagely racist Anthropology Days, the book also reveals some disturbing details about James Sullivan, the Olympic official who designed the race. He wanted to test how far humans could run without proper hydration. So the whole business of having only one water stop? That was his idea. So between the anthropology days and dehydrating Olympic runners on purpose, Sullivan saw the Olympics as his own personal anthropological study. The race seemed to have kind of this Frankenstein element to it. Sullivan watched as runners limped across the finish line and crassly told the press that he thought marathons were quote-unquote man-killers and should be discontinued. Weirdly, he referenced the Olympic marathon in Paris just four years earlier, which he was also present for. So he knew marathons were nearly impossible at this time and still went forward with his experiment. Now, if all of this sounds familiar, it's because the 1914 Giro d'Italia a decade later put their cyclists through an equally tough course for similar reasons. Tim Moore, who tried to recreate that experience for a book, spoke with me for the episode, Such as Fame. I mean, this was also just about the same time where they were introducing the, the, the marathon into the, the Olympics and so on. And there was, again, this sort of fixation, obsession, um, fascination with, with what people could do. What, you know, I think it's because partly maybe that we were coming into the, the full industrial age and a country like Italy was obviously a bit behind the curve in that way. It wasn't quite as economically developed as other countries. And uh, I guess they thought, well, we got all these these you know, machines can do everything now, but like, let's, let's, you know, let's, we, we push that, you know, we're pushing beyond the human realm, but let's go back into the human realm. See, like, well, you know, before we give up and give in to the age of the machine, what can, what can men actually do that is, you know, kind of almost, almost machine-like in terms of the extremity? How far, how far can we push our own bodies? You might remember that for that conversation, He's specifically referencing how Italians were dealing with industrialization in the early 20th century. But Americans around the same time were undergoing a similar identity crisis. So in age, all of these heroic activities, it's the last stage of what's often called the heroic age of exploration, when there are these various expeditions to the poles and to the few places on earth that hadn't been surveyed. And they're, they're miserable. The experience must have been utterly miserable. You know, going to the South Pole, wearing cotton and wool, you know, instead of what we can wear now. Um, 
that would have been just a miserable experience, but it was celebrated as these acts of, hero, you know, kind of heroic of heroism. When it does come to sports, part of this was specifically saying that masculinity would not be destroyed by industrialization. Uh, you know, this is roughly the period when there's a population tip where before, I think, 1880, the majority of Americans lived in rural um, settings, the most many of them working in agriculture to a time, certainly by 1900, when the majority of Americans lived in cities. And there were people who claimed in many countries that one of the problems that went with this was that people, and especially men, were having their strength taken away from them. Instead of being virtuous, hardworking farmers uh, who labored for their wages and were independent in their decisions, you had either industrial workers who had miserable conditions or office workers who were who had a sedentary life. And so sport, as it was sometimes called then, was imagined as this way that it would preserve masculine vigor, masculine strength. Teddy Roosevelt, you know, used to talk, he used to use this language all the time, that he that American masculine vigor was under attack and that vigorous activity, and for him, a lot of it was about hiking and going out in the country and all that and going to the West, but he loved sports for that very reason, that it would be a way to do this. So yeah, all of that was at work. Speaking of Teddy Roosevelt, his daughter Alice was at this marathon and was waiting at the finish line when Lourdes, who, remember, cheated by hitching a ride and was later disqualified, appeared to win. At first, the crowd was cheering, happy that they had an American champion. In ceremonial fashion, she placed a wreath on his head and was just about to give him the gold medal but then it was pointed out that he was seen riding in a car. The crowd began to boo, and Lors, and this part I promise to you is based off of first-hand accounts, told everybody something along the lines of, oh yeah, I know I cheated, I was just accepting the prize as a joke. Hopefully, it's not too cheesy to say that this kind of feels like an allegory for the whole event. The marathon, the Olympics, the fair. In retrospect, it all just kind of seems like a ruse. At the time, what it enabled, especially native-born U.S. citizens of European descent to believe the story they could draw from it was how they and their ancestors had built a great democracy, one that was democratic in the way Europe was not. They would say, our ancestors came from monarchies and empires. We have built a democracy. And this is part of a larger argument at the time people were making that the United States was not just a watered down version of Europe, which is what Europeans were saying, but that in fact, we were the symbol. We had built democracy. We had built modern capitalism. We had done all of these things. So there were many, again, native born Euro-Americans who could come out of this celebrating their country. There were many others, especially immigrants who would say there's possibility and opportunity in this country. And there are still others who would see at that time what we now so clearly see, looking back, which was the World's Fair really embodied the ways that race and nationality would determine what was possible. St. Louis itself was segregated between the, at that time, white majority and African-American minorities, just Jim Crow segregation. But how race would lead to different experiences, to authority, to power, to hierarchy, 
that was so clearly displayed at the World's Fair. But hey, it wasn't all bad, though. One of the legacies was that the United States could host Olympics, that Olympics could truly be global, not just in the athletes who participated, but in the nations that would host. Because let's, let's remember that in the first quarter of the 20th century, most Olympics were hosted in Western Europe and then occasionally in the U.S. It's only really after World War II that hosting the Olympics becomes global. But the 1904 Olympics showed that. The 1904 Olympics teaches us how difficult athletics are. It's, it's sad, but also inspiring. Like these guys had no idea what they were getting into. This episode was brought to you in part by Alexander's Wood Emporium. For custom wood projects like furniture, signage, art, and sundry, check out alexanderswoodemporium.com. It's owned and operated by David Gunn, who provided research for this episode and others. A special thanks goes out to Peter Castor for his contributions to this episode. A more detailed list of sources that I use for research are provided in the show notes. Music for this episode is from the Storyblocks Library. The episode was written, edited, narrated, and produced by me. I'm Stuart Barefoot. This was part one of a three-part series on 1904. Coming up on part two of Circa 1904. Early boxing, a lot of the money behind it was fueled by gambling. So that was, uh, a lot of these things really went hand in hand. There was a lot of money changing hands and they weren't about to just allow that to, to slide. Until then, more episodes can be found at obscureballpod.com or anywhere they have podcasts.